Hello, I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and welcome to this week's first episode of the IFS Zooms In, where we're going to ask the question, is the government doing enough, or perhaps is the government doing too much, to support workers during this pandemic? On the call, we have Helen Miller, who's Deputy Director at the IFS and Head of our Tax Sector, and we're also joined by Zhao Weizhou, a Senior Research Economist here at the IFS, who works on incomes, work and welfare. So is the government doing enough or too much? We have this huge furlough scheme, which we've seen just in the last couple of days, is uh, potentially affecting up to a quarter uh, of the workforce designed to protect people's incomes uh, and to keep them in work uh, whilst, or at least in employment, in jobs, whilst the pandemic continues. The government's also done quite a lot to increase benefits over this period. It's going to have to think very carefully, of course, how we move away from this huge government intervention, as the Chancellor said uh, in the last couple of days. We're spending as much on this as we spend on the health service. So to start with, to start exploring some of those questions, I'm going to turn to Helen uh, to Helen Miller. And, and Helen, perhaps we could start by just asking why we needed this uh, enormously um, generous furlough scheme uh, and what do we know about the scale of it? Sure. I think there are two reasons the government decided to do something. One is that had it done nothing, then when it shut part of the economy, there would have been a huge increase in unemployment and lots of hardship. So people would have lost their incomes very quickly and they wanted to try to prevent that. The other reason is to try to preserve the link between employees and their employers. So hopefully a lot of what we're seeing is temporary. And when the economy opens again, you want to make sure that people can get back to their jobs quickly and be productive again. So that's why we had the scheme. Um, the scheme replaces, let's say government replaced 80% of wage costs for employer employees who are furloughed, so who stop working. And the scale is pretty big. So the latest figures show that about 6 million people are already uh, registered to use the furlough scheme. Um, that's a getting on towards 30% of private sector employees. That's a big chunk of the, uh, of the workforce. Um, and when the OBR originally put some sort of costings against this, they thought that for three months that it was originally put in place, it would cost around £40 billion. It's already been extended for another month. And we think it will probably be extended further to sort of transition out of the lockdown. So it's a big scheme, both in that lots of people are covered and it comes with a big price tag. Um, uh, and what about the self-employed? You, you described the system for employees, but if you're self-employed, then you're not covered by that furlough scheme, are you? You're not. But there is a scheme that is trying to be equivalent. So by necessity, it works a little bit differently, but it is trying to replace incomes up to 80%, sorry, 80% of incomes up to £2,500 a month. And the way it's doing it for the self-employed is to say that they'll get a grant of 80% of their normal profits, where normal profits are defined based on profits in recent years. And there'll be three months of that grant paid in, uh, in a lump sum in June. So a different functioning system, but one that's trying to achieve uh, the same, uh, replace incomes to the same degree. Both of those sound like pretty generous schemes, replacing 80% of earnings up to 2500 uh, a month. Um, so pretty generous, but, but is it generous to everybody? No. So there are people who are going to fall through the gaps of both of the schemes for different reasons. So on the furlough scheme for employees, I'll say I'll help people who are furloughed by meaning mean they don't do any work for their employer. Um, but it's not going to help those people who maybe reduce their hours and reduce their pay. Maybe they're doing part time now because there's not much work. They're not going to get any help. So they're falling through the cracks of that scene. 
And then for the self-employed, there are about 5 million people in the UK who get some of their income from self-employment and about 40% of those won't be eligible for the scheme. Now, for the most part, that's because lots of people get less than half of their income from self-employment, so they won't be eligible. You also won't be eligible if you're earning over £50,000 and you're self-employed or if you're newly self-employed. So again, a group there that are falling through the cracks. Then there's a kind of interesting group of about 2 million people who run their own incorporated businesses. They look like the self-employed, but they're running companies. And in principle, they can use the furlough scheme. They can furlough themselves and get their salaries covered. But for tax reasons, most of them pay themselves a very small salary and take most of their income in dividends. And those dividends aren't covered. So the scheme's there in principle, but it's not really covering their income. So people are falling through the cracks for various reasons. So taking each of those in turn, one of the effects of the furlough scheme then presumably is to result in employers saying, well, we're going to maybe keep this half on full time and let that half go altogether, as opposed to, for example, uh, giving people half, spreading the work across everyone half time. Exactly. Um, that's, and that'll be a particular issue as we try to come out of furlough. If we think we want some people working part time, um, or more people doing part-time work, it's going to be hard to uh, to maybe get that to happen. There's another similar effect within couples. So if there are childcare requirements and people need to look after their children, then rather than both parts of the couple reduce their hours and help share the childcare, there's an incentive for one to stop working completely and be furloughed and the other one to, to stay full-time. So because of the cliff-edge nature of the scheme, there'll be a bunch of effects like that. And there's that cliff edge for the self-employed as well, isn't there? So if you your profits over the last few years were just over £50,000, you get absolutely nothing. And just under, you get really quite a lot. Exactly. And similarly, if um, you got just uh, under half of your income from self-employment, then you'll get nothing. And if you got just over, you'll get, you'll get everything. And I think what we're really seeing there is a reflection that the government had to design these schemes pretty quickly and get them out the door pretty quickly. Um, and one of the consequences of that is that the schemes have tried to target most people in the in the worst situations, but they're sort of missing uh, some bits around the edges. So we focused, as we usually do, on uh, the losers uh, and on those who are not being covered. But but is there also a concern that actually maybe these schemes are a bit a bit too generous? They may be uh, creating the wrong incentives for firms. They may be making things quite difficult in terms of moving forward. Yes. And I think so on the furlough scheme and the self-employment, I guess, the big question is, is 80% too generous? So I said that one of the aims was to prevent hardship and stop people uh, you know, falling in, uh, having into hard times as a result of this. But if you think about people not going to work anymore, their costs will fall. They haven't got to pay the cost of commuting or that you know, there's less costs associated with eating out, maybe. People aren't going out and doing their normal socialising and enjoying things. So it's possible that actually 80% is more than enough to cover sort of the normal living standards and actually a lower rate um, would have been, you know, would have been possible to uh, cover the cost of living. And as you said, to come out of this, that'll be important because we don't want the furlough scheme to in itself become something that stops people getting back into work because they would rather take 80% on furlough than say 60% and be back in work. So in that sense, the 80% might be too generous and too high. Um, for the self-employed, actually, it's a, a slightly different issue, which is that because the self-employed don't have to stop working in order to get access to the scheme, they can actually carry on working. There are actually a very large number of them who will be better off than they would have been financially had the crisis not hit. And that's because for those people who are still working and earning most of their income, they'll get all of their income, plus they'll get a grant on top of that. So in that sense, 
I don't think the government planned to make people better off as a result of the crisis. That's just, again, a, a result of, of the poor targeting. And the furlough scheme uh, seems to have turned out to be much bigger than I think Treasury was originally expecting. When they first announced it, they were saying, well, if 10% of the workforce um, take the furlough, it will cost around $10 billion. But it's looking to be three or four times that size, isn't it? So I think, and I think it's still unknown how big it will be. So I said the HMRC uh, think that currently there are six million uh, workers using the scheme. It's also possible that many more will be put onto the scheme in coming months. So, um, and of course, it also depends on how much how many how much money is being claimed through the scheme. So it's still uncertain how how big it will end up being. Okay, so that's. Um, I mean, actually, if you look at the overall costs of what the government's done over the last couple of months, that furlough scheme for employees is. The biggest, certainly by OBR numbers, 30 or 40 billion or more over a three or four month period, which is a huge number. Um, and as the Chancellor said, the sort of amount we spend in that period on the on the National Health Service. But it's not just um, the furlough scheme and the self-employment support scheme that we've seen. We have actually seen uh, some significant increases in benefits uh, and indeed very large numbers of people ending up on the benefit system. So the furlough scheme hasn't protected everybody's jobs by any means. So now uh, we'll move to to Zhao Wei to talk about uh, what's been happening with uh, the benefit system. And it, it still has had to pick up a lot of the slack, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So um, in the first four weeks since social distancing began, there's been nearly 2 million new claims for universal credit and that's one and a half more million than we'd normally expect during normal times. So it does seem like, despite the support that Helen's outlined, um, many people are still seeing substantial falls in their income, um, either because they've been made unemployed or falling through the cracks in other ways that Helen's described. And, and this is a very different, the social security system is very different from the furlough scheme. It's not replacing anything like 80% of people's incomes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think... The standard rate of universal credit, for example, would cover about £400 a month um, for a single person, whereas the fallow scheme would cover up to 2500 Of course, you get housing benefits and other things on top of that, but they're really very different in terms of magnitude. So a huge difference for those who are, who are on the furlough and those who actually lose their job, not just in the short run, but in the long run as well, because they don't have a job to... Uh, to go back to. What, what, one thing on the positive side, though, I mean, the, the, the system appears to have coped with this vast number of additional claims, hasn't it? Yeah, that's true. So DWP seems to have been processing these claims um, as usual, which is uh, great given the, the vast spike in claims that we've seen. And how much do we know about who has ended up on uh, on these benefits? What sort of uh, people have, have ended up? Who are these two million additional claimants? Um, so we don't know exactly who these people are because we're still waiting for data to come through, but I think we can make a good guess. So we know, for example, um, that a number of sectors have been effectively shut down during the course of this lockdown. So those are sectors like non-food retail, hospitality, arts and leisure. And we know that many of the workers in those sectors will be made out of work. Um, looking at the types of people who work in these sectors, we know that they're disproportionately likely to be low paid and younger workers. So those in the bottom tenth of the earnings distribution are seven times more likely to work in one of these shutdown sectors than those in the top tenth. That's huge, isn't it? Seven times more likely to be in a shutdown sector if you're in the bottom 10% of the earnings distribution than if you're in the top, and a lot more likely if you're 
young than if you're old as well. So these are is likely to be low earners and young people who are being forced onto onto benefits. And our benefit system isn't terribly generous, is it? Particularly um, after the cuts of recent years. Yeah, you're exactly right. So our benefit system is not very generous, um, either compared to other European countries or even compared to what we've had in the UK historically. Um, The value of -of out-of-work benefits in particular has been falling since the late 1970s. And as you said, we've just seen, you know, 10 years of austerity um, with benefits being cut. Um, So as a result, um, it seems like those being made unemployed during this time will expect to see large falls in their income. To give you a sense of scale, 62% of working-age households who are out of work are currently in relative poverty. So the majority of those out of work are in poverty, and that's a direct result of the system of benefits, which have been, you know, and a big change that people probably don't uh, know so much about is that we've had a freeze for four years. So the, these the, these already quite low benefits have not even risen in line with prices for four years. Um, but all of that said, we did see a bit of an about turn, um, didn't we, uh, right at the beginning of the social distancing period when the Chancellor announced increases to some of the key benefits. Could you tell us um, what what those increases were? Um, So at the start of the crisis, the Chancellor announced an increase in the standard rate of universal credit of £1,000 a year. Um, They've also brought local housing allowance back into line with local rents. So in 2012, they were decoupled from local rents, but now um, you can get up to the 30th percentile of rents in your local area again. So that will benefit renters in areas uh, where rents have risen most in, in recent years. Um, but of course, that might still not be enough for many families um, with high levels of committed expenditure. So for example, families who have high rents at the moment who can't move house um, if they start losing income. And one of the one of the things that's going to happen as a result of this crisis is that a lot of people who probably never thought that they would be uh, using the benefit system are going to see see for themselves just how it works. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's worth noting that the UK benefit system is not particularly well designed to cope with these um, sudden shocks to people's income. So it's very much designed to guarantee a basic income floor rather than to ensure against shocks in a way that actually covers people's costs. Um, so, for example, it's not tied to your previous earnings the way that benefit systems in many European countries are. And that's been made more the case in recent years because we've seen things like the benefit cap, the two-child limit, um, the bedroom tax, and this decoupling of local housing allowance from local rents. That means that the benefit system doesn't actually cover people's costs. So um, so those are the ways in which the government has, um, the main ways in which the government has uh, improved the safety net for people through the furlough scheme, through the increases in, in benefits. It may feel a little early uh, to be thinking about this, but we do also need to start wondering how we move away from where we are, because clearly, certainly for the furlough scheme, we can't continue with the government paying for uh, the earnings of 25 or 30% of the private sector workforce. So returning to you, uh, Helen, what, what is your sense of how we might move away from uh, from where we are at the moment as we hopefully uh, transition to a more normal economy. Well, I think it's increasingly clear that the government plans to, you know, reduce lockdown gradually, and that probably means that certain sectors will be encouraged to go back to work, and then other sectors, and then other sectors. And the Chancellor said he doesn't plan for there to be a big cliff edge on the furlough scheme, which I think suggests that he plans to you know, 
extend it for at least some uh, some sectors or some people. And of course, there's a whole bunch of decisions there. You could think about them making it, you know, taking it away from some sectors or some types of workers as the lockdown comes down. You could change the 80%. You could uh, adjust the scheme completely so that it works um, by topping up incomes of people who are working part-time because of the virus or many other things. But I think probably what we're going to see is some unwinding of the scheme slowly. I think big picture, what's going to be really difficult about that is this very fine balancing act. On the one hand, you don't want to remove the scheme too soon and leave people who have viable jobs to be made unemployed. So employers cut jobs that we think should bounce back. On the other hand, I think there's the harsh reality that some of the people who are currently furloughed are effectively unemployed um, and that their jobs aren't going to come back even once lockdown is lifted. Um, either because you know, we're poorer and we're going to spend less or because you know, change, you know, there's been a change in demand, maybe away from transport, for example. So at some point, if to the extent that there are people who are effectively unemployed, we need to move them off a of furlough and onto unemployment and hopefully via unemployment to other jobs in the economy and getting that balance right between preserving it, it, as many jobs as we can, but not keeping going so long that we keep more jobs going than are really there picking that point and how to get between those two situations, it can be very difficult. I suspect it's going to be one of the most difficult um, balancing acts that any government has had to manage in a in a very long time indeed. And that, that balancing act is something we may come back to uh, in another one of these uh, in another one of these podcasts. Zhao Wei, the um, the issues for the benefit system in principle look a bit more straightforward. You might just say, well these increases in universal credit and lo- local housing allowance are only intended to be here for a year, and next year we'll just return uh, to where we were before. Do you think that's that's how it will be unwound, or do you think it's more complicated uh, than that? Well, I think politically it will be very difficult to unwind the increases in, say, universal credit in cash terms. Um, so I think if the government were to try to rewind unwind that, it would do so by freezing the current allowances in cash terms um, and then gradually letting inflation erode its value. That would still leave universal credit more generous than it would have otherwise been for a few years. Um, But I think it's interesting to think about whether the current crisis might have longer term effects on the tax and benefit system. So as we said, lots of people are currently coming into contact with the benefit system, and many of those people would not have otherwise um, expected to fall back on the benefit system. So it's possible that that will change attitudes towards the benefit system. Um, I think similarly with the value scheme, um, so that's something that's obviously very radical by UK standards, but it's actually not very different from the unemployment insurance system in many European countries. So for example, in France or in Scandinavia, um, where the state would cover the majority of your earnings for a short period of time after you're made unemployed. Uh, so I think the, the shock might get us to think about um, whether there's a need to, to rethink this, the role of state insurance uh, rather than just providing a basic income floor. Uh, a, a new beverage, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. Uh, and and on, as far as the local housing allowance is concerned, I think people will be really quite surprised to know that... Um, the the rent uh, the rent rebates the housing benefit you got until a couple of months ago was based on the local rents in your area back in 2012. Yeah, precisely. So that's just been really quite a sneaky way of um, freezing local housing allowance. But um, I think that system was also premised on the idea that you're targeting perhaps a fixed group of people who can then adjust their behaviour over time, so they can choose to move to cheaper areas. Um, after they're put on benefits, but it's really poorly equipped to deal with a sort of sudden shock where people don't really have time to start adjusting their expenditure. 
And it seems unlikely that we'll move back next year to a system, having having moved today to a system based on actual rents, it seems unlikely, I guess, that we'll move back to one based on rents, what will be nine years ago. Yeah, it's certainly unlikely it'll move back to 2012. I guess the question is whether they keep it tied to local rents or whether they then freeze it on 2020 rents. So some huge questions there. There are big questions opened up by this crisis about the way our welfare system works. As you've heard, in uh, historically, it has not provided a decent re- replacement for earnings because it's assumed that people uh, will be moving into it only for the short term. Uh, and uh, to be honest, a large group of us will never uh, need to make use of it. Uh, we've had a huge um, amount of spending on the furlough scheme, on supporting the incomes of employees and the self-employed in order, uh, as it were, to preserve the economy in ASPIC so that we can hopefully get back to something like normal uh, when uh, social distancing comes to an end. Uh, Both of these schemes have been uh, very expensive. They've both been very radical by British standards. And I think they both open up some really big and interesting questions about how we're going to move our tax and welfare system uh, into the into the future because it looks certainly on that welfare scheme like we're not going to go back to where we were very quickly uh, and uh, the um, uh, and the way in which we get out of the furlough scheme is as we've said going to be one of the most difficult judgments any government has ever had to make. But we'll we'll leave it there for this week. But we've got an awful lot more uh, to talk about in terms of the impacts. Um, of this uh, coronavirus pandemic and the government reaction to it. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow, share and like us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting ifs.org.uk. Stay well and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. <laughs>